0: Our sermon passage comes from Ruth chapter 2 verses 14 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her the roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Merciful Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word which you says does not return void. I pray that you would produce fruit in all of our lives as we consider the truths of your holy scriptures this morning. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, An author that many of you may be familiar with, Rosaria Butterfield, wrote uh, a memoir called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And in this book, she, she writes about her journey from being this radical, feminist, lesbian professor at Syracuse to becoming a follower of Christ. And uh, one of the stories she tells is how this journey started when she wrote an article in the, in the newspaper um, about the Promise Keepers. It was a critique of the Promise Keepers. Which if you're not familiar, it's okay. It was this really strong Christian movement in the 90s, uh, for men to gather uh, together, and she was critiquing this movement, and because of her critique, she received lots of hate mail from the Christian community in the area. She also received lots of fan mail from people who liked her article, and then she also received this letter from this 70-year-old minister who was a Reformed Presbyterian minister in the area, and she wasn't sure what to do with it. It disturbed her. She couldn't tell, is this hate mail or is this a fan mail? And after about a week of like dwelling on this letter that she received from this man, she decided to, to bring him up. She found his number and she called him. And, and this pastor invited her to his house for dinner. And, uh, and she writes this about it. Ken and Floyd did something at the meal that has a long Christian history but has been lost. Ken and Floyd invited a stranger in, not to scapegoat, but to listen and learn in dialogue. And it's this simple meal that she had in this pastor's home that actually ended up changing her. And she calls it the, the first leg of her journey to knowing God. This meal changed her life, being invited in, even as a stranger. Or to put a different biblical word in it, she was shown, hospitality. Hospitality, in the, in the New Testament, used, It comes from this word that means love of a stranger. Hospitality changed her life. It brought her in. It treated her like family. It brought the outsider in so that she could feel the warmth and comfort of what it meant to be someone on the inn. And this is actually a picture of what we have happening here in Ruth. Right? Ruth continues to experience the kindness of Boaz, and it takes an even more intimate turn here as she isn't just invited to come and to take what she can from the fields. She's invited to his table where she's actually served by Boaz himself, bringing the outsider in. She's brought in to his table from the outside, right? From being from Moab, from a distant foreign land, to dining at this man's table. And in this, what we're going to find is that he's modeling Christ himself to Ruth. And so, as we consider this topic of hospitality this morning and explore it in these just few verses, what we're going to find it has a lot to teach us as a young church that's just learning what does it mean to be a community together and one of the things it means is that God's people are are supposed to be marked in part at least by hospitality the people of god are meant to be hospitable people because god is hospitable so and this is what we desire to be as a community it's one of our core values is hospitality so what is this teaching us about hospitality? Well, there's two things, uh, and un- under those two things, there's multiple subpoints. So it's more like five to ten things, but we're going to call it two things for the sake of your outlines for those note-takers. And the first thing we're going to learn is that hospitality is communal. Hospitality is communal, and it's, it's not just any kind of community, but it's a family type of community. It's a tight-knit community community and we see this right from the beginning here in verse 14 says this and at mealtime Boaz said to her come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine and so what Boaz is doing in this invitation come and sit at my table is very unusual especially in this time men would not sit at tables with women unless they were part of their family Uh, and and they certainly would not have been served by a man uh, this would have been especially true about foreign women, especially foreign women from Moab. And so by inviting Ruth, just inviting her to come and sit at the table, he is showing her great honor. He is inviting her into his family and he serves her and says he passes the plate to her, taking special care from her. of her. The master, right, serving this peasant foreign widow who happened upon his fields. Which, if anything, this kind of gives us a little bit more insight even into, the, into Boaz, into his character. That he comes into his fields, that he eats with his workers, that he loves the people who work for him. And his people seem to love him, right? We had the greeting last week, you know, the Lord be with you and also with you, basically, is what he says. And, um, and now, it's, it seems like it's this joyous community. He, he's the kind of boss you want to have with you. Uh, and now we have Ruth being invited in. He's treating her like family. Hospitality expen- extends the, the benefits of the family to her. And what we find here and throughout Scripture is the communal aspect of hospitality almost always includes a meal. It's centered around the table. I mean, you could argue all the Scripture is bookmarked by two meals, right? The meal uh, that brought sin into the world in the garden and, the, and then the supper feast of the Lamb where, where Christ comes and makes all things new at the end of the story. Scripture is centered around the table and inviting the outsider into the table. And this is what Ruth is experiencing. Through a meal, she is brought inside. She's treated like family. She is marked as an insider, and she belongs being fed by the master. And this is what we all want, right? Uh, we all want to belong. We all want community. We all crave community. I imagine it's one of the reasons why many people are here. You're looking for community. One of the worst, because no one wants to be an outsider. You know, One of the worst feelings there is, is like walking into a place for the first time. It's really uncomfortable walking into even like a grocery store for the first time. It's like, is this one of those places that has the produce on the right side of the store? Is this the left side of the store? Or is it like Fred Meyer's where sometimes it's in the middle of the store? Then you've got apparel over here, and I'm not really sure what to do with that. But, you know, it's like you just, you just kind of walk to a spot, and you pretend like you're browsing sweatpants as if that's what you're there for. And then you kind of slowly mosey, mosey on because you can feel like everyone's looking at me and watching me. They know that I don't know what I'm going, right? And, you know, when you walk into a church, it's even more like that, right? Even walking into this room for the first time, you're like, "Where do I sit? Am I going to sit in that family spot? Are they going to get mad at me? Are they going to talk to me? Are they going to like me? Am I going to like them?" You know, so we have all these, these running narrative that goes through our minds when we're outsiders, um, and we can feel it. You can feel it when you just don't fit in a place. You know, I remember feeling this way at a church plant I was a part of when I was going to school outside of Vancouver, British Columbia, and there was two families that invited me into their home for meal after church. And they ended up treating me like a brother, like a son. And eventually, they kind of almost invited me into their family. I watched their kids for them when they went on date nights. I went on family vacations with them. And I was just one of their family. As a single guy, it was an incredible joy. It was an amazing thing to experience. Although I think one of the problems with community, especially with church community, is that this is often where it stops for us. Right? We all want the security and love that being part of a community, having the hospitality being shown to us brings us. But once we have it, that inclusive community actually becomes an exclusive community. For instance, once I felt like an insider from this with this family from church, I didn't want to disrupt it by inviting others in. I wanted it to stay just like it was. It was perfect, just like it was. I wanted it all for myself. I remember not wanting my roommate to come to dinner one day because... I was like, go find your own family. I got this family. They're they're covered. You go find your own. And, you know, Paul Miller in his book on Ruth points out this very thing, that the thing that makes community tight-knit is actually the same thing that can make it exclusive to the outsider. He writes this about this uh, from Ruth, that instinctively we know what makes for a good community, a safe place where I'm included and where I'm known and loved and in turn where I know and love others. Creating an inclusive community is the holy grail of modern culture, but actually doing it is extremely difficult because the very qualities that create a tight knit community often work against, including outsiders. He's saying the very things that make a community tight knit are the things that can make it exclusive. Because the stranger by nature doesn't have the same common interests or doesn't know how we do things, and so it can be confusing. They haven't yet learned all the customs and the language of the community. It's like traveling to a new country. You know, if you've ever had a foreigner come and sit at a table with you, you can tell that they're an outsider, even just the way they eat. You know, we had a, a Mexican family come and eat with us once at our table, and the, 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 the parents did not speak English, but the kids did, and so the kids translated for us. And I remember Jen and I were noticing, like, how awkward it was for this one woman to use a fork. And we said, Is that a, you don't have to use a fork if you don't want to, and... It turns out she never used a fork before. She just used a tortilla to eat her food. It's just even like in, in eating, you can tell when someone feels like an outsider, trying to fit in. Uh, and so the very thing that makes this community tight it makes it exclusive. The, the very security that we want ends up keeping people out because outsiders end up disrupting the peace and security we have. So how are we supposed to do this? How are we supposed to show this kind of hospitality and have community? Well, uh, one pastor friend, Nate Walker, points out in First Peter 4.9 when speaking about this. And he says in First Peter 4.9, we have a clue where Peter says this to the community. He says, you're called to show hospitality without grumbling or without complaining. We're called to show hospitality without grumbling. Peter was onto something here. He knew how difficult it was for us to actually have this kind of community that's constantly inviting the outsider in, that's constantly being disrupted. He understands that we're gonna di- we're gonna want to grumble at this. We're gonna wanna complain when people are disrupting our perfect community and letting people in. It's like when you get to the kitchen finally perfectly clean, and then someone goes in and tries to make something, you're like, no. Like, order pizza or something, but we're going to keep this kitchen clean for a couple hours, you know? It's like that. It's like, we like to have our community nice and clean. We know where we fit. We know where those people fit. I have my little place. And we don't want that disrupted. And so Peter knows this is there. He says, do not complain by doing this. He understands that we're going to grumble about disrupting our perfect community because it's painful to get disrupted. But we have to constantly be unsettled if we're following Christ. If we're following Christ, our lives are going to be disrupted. The question that a community like this asks is this. Who is the one that's left out? Who is the one that's by themselves? And how can I extend the comfort and love I feel? Right? The joy and the wisdom that we can share with them, with the outsider. You know, Jesus speaks about this also. I'm just going to read you a little portion from the Gospel of Luke Luke 14, and speaking about this uh, parable of uh, the wedding feast and the parable of the great banquet, I'm just going to read a few verses from chapter Luke 14, verse 12 to 14. He says this, When you have a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. uh, One of the reasons why I think we often ignore this is because we're worried that Jesus is saying you can't have dinner with your friends anymore. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying you can't have dinner with your friends or enjoy the friendships that you have. We very much can and should. But having dinner parties with friends is not a distinctly Christian thing, is it? Everyone has dinner parties with people that they like. The distinctly Christian thing is thinking about the outsider, having a party with them. Because hospitality is not entertainment. It's extending the love of a community to the one that's outside the community, the love of Christ, right, that undeserved, steadfast love of Christ that we've experienced to the one on the outside who's equally as undeserving as we are. Bringing them in and extending the benefits of the family. Right, the table, protection, roof over our heads, gather around a table, allowing our lives to be disrupted so that the stranger can come in. And what is interesting here is that this happens for, for Boaz in the midst of ordinary life. Right? Inviting someone into your family means inviting them into your space as it is and as you are with the messy hair and dirty floors, right? with simple meals. And you know what makes the story about uh, Ruth and Boaz here stand out isn't the gourmet cooking, Right? They sat down in the fields. They had grain, yummy. Who doesn't love roasted grain and bread and wine? And this wine would have been like a really vinegar kind of wine. It would not have tasted good. This is not the fine wine kind of stuff. Uh, it's not the meal that stands out, is it? But it's just overwhelming generosity. And this is, I think, the, the second aspect of hospitality that we find is it's communal. It's just inviting someone into your space. It's having your space disrupted. And it's also generous. <clears throat> Hospitality is generous. We see here that Boaz uh, withholds nothing from her. You know, the word here, when it's talking about the, the grain being passed, when it says he passed the grain, uh, it kind of struggles to give us a, a real image of what's happening. It's actually like he's, he's, he's putting a heap of grains on her plate and passing it to her. It's over the top. It's, it's a heaping mound of grains. He's sowing zero restraint in his generosity. So much so that she actually has some left over to go and share with her mother-in-law. There's abundance here. It says that she is satisfied. She is full. I mean, when's the last time that she's probably been satisfied at a meal? It's probably been a while. I mean, traveling all the way from, from Moab back, back to Bethlehem. And now she's hungry, so she goes on the field. She probably didn't have any food with her. And then she gets invited to this table, and now she's satisfied. So much so that her cup is overflowing. There's abundance. And I think one of the insights we see next, next week in this lavish meal is that Ruth, in this, doesn't, still doesn't forget her obligations to Naomi. She saves the leftovers, not for herself, for like a, a little midday snack, as I probably would have done, but for her mother-in-law. Who he know, she knows that Naomi is still back at home, probably really hungry, and she, she, she saves it for her, and generosity is both received by Ruth, and then, as she receives, she gives and I see we see this further in that she doesn 't simply just remain at the table, she doesn 't lounge there as long as she can, uh, she doesn 't go home early because she 's got what she wants and, and needs, but what does she do? It says she goes back to the field here in verse uh, 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 I'm still looking at Luke. That's why it didn't make sense. Here we go. Ruth 2, uh, verse 15. It says this. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, right, so right after the meal, she eats, she has leftover, but she doesn't lounge. She gets up and goes back into the field. But the generosity of Boaz continues. Boaz instructs his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pull out some from the bundles for her. And leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. He's saying, even come and glean among the she, which is to say that even in the not yet harvested areas, you can go glean there. And we're going to pull our already harvested bundles out for you and you can glean there too. Boaz is generous. He's not making it difficult for her to get food. She still works, but he's making it easy. And he goes above and beyond what any uh, Jewish law would have required of him because he understands the heart of the law. To provide for the needy to care for those on the outside to bring them in to treat them as you would a family member and he makes sure that his workers know that she's allowed to do this too you know it would have been very unusual for someone on the outside to come in and start picking through like what's already been harvested and so he's saying listen uh, she is under my care she can, she can take from whatever I have, everything that is mine, she can have. Do not rebuke her for this. Do not chastise her for this. this is, she has my uh, approval for this. And so hospitality, right, loving the outsider, the stranger, is generous. You, you actually can't love strangers if you hoard what you have, right? If you're always protecting your assets, if you're miserly, right? But to love the stranger requires a generous spirit. For one, it's a willingness to be disrupted, but also a willingness to actually share what you have, trusting, right, that the God who provided for you once, right, the things that you have now, will provide for you tomorrow for the things that you're going to need then, too. And we see the extent of this generosity here in verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. So she worked still until the night. And then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an, an ephah of barley. And so she takes all that she's gathered to the threshing floor. She's beating it out so she can get the, the grain to, to bring home. And it's, you know, and, and this amount of grain is likely somewhere between 30 to 50 pounds of grain she got that day. Which for one, you know, woman to do in that day and age would have been an incredible amount. It would have probably fed her and Naomi for over a month. It's A generous amount. It is over the top, and when we consider this level of generosity, and we consider even our own lives, I think one of the problems for us is we can start to get anxious when we're listening about this topic. When we read about it, and when we hear the words of Jesus in Luke 14, it sounds exhausting. So we're supposed to have all these people in that we don't know, and are we supposed to do this all the time? Is this like every moment of the day, or can we have quiet time? Is that allowed? And And, you know, also, most of us, many of us, probably have little margins in our days. We're all so busy running around from one thing to the next, and not all of that's bad. And if I could just respond to that, you know, temptation to have no margin in our lives, maybe I'll say this first. First, I'll, I'll challenge that and say, if your life affords you zero margin to love the stranger, right? to do the things that Christians are supposed to do, then maybe something in our life actually needs to change. I can't tell you what this is, but I do know in my own life, technology can trick us into thinking that we can be more efficient and do more than people did 100 years ago. And I am fairly confident that we actually have the same limitations as any generation before us. So one of the questions is, do you accept the limitations that you have? Or do you try to work 24 hours a day? Listen, you're not God. God rested on the Sabbath I suggest you need the to rest too and invite others into your rest. So first, it's a challenge to say if you have no margin to love the stranger, then maybe there's a problem in the way we've structured our lives. But secondly, to say something I've already said, remember that this is happening in the context of ordinary life. Boaz didn't add another thing to his day. You know, this meal wasn't like this, you know, great planning had to happen for it to be made. It was simple. It was what he was already planning to eat that day. The meal happened in the rhythms of his ordinary life in the middle of his day when he was already planning to sit down and eat. And so one of the questions we can ask is, what are the ordinary rhythms of your life that you can invite someone else into? What are those ordinary, everyday things, even right now, that you have in your life that you can invite someone into? And so before we start to rework our entire lives and we just say, okay, Craig said I had to quit everything, so I'm quitting everything. That's not what I'm saying You know, but one of the things God has given us that we should use is the Sabbath, right? He's given us Sabbath rest for a reason. Do you use it? Do you set it aside for God and his people? You know, maybe we put a soup in a crock pot and invite someone over after church. But where are the places and the rhythms in life that you already have that you can do this? Maybe it's, you know, if you're at a sporting event with a kid, maybe it's sharing a burrito or something with another mom or dad at a sports game or practice. We can be creative with this. right? Boaz simply just sat down in the field and offered what he had. So the question is, where has God placed you sovereignly? And what has he given you? Wherever we are, we're called to share what we have. No matter how little it is, it's bread and wine. Though you're probably not walking around with bread and wine, but if you're in France, maybe you would be. Um, but whatever you have in that moment, share it with those around you. Invite those outside people in life look for outsiders and let them disrupt your life and even to the single people in the room remember boaz was single and he did this this is for single people too jesus was single and he what did he get in trouble for was eating with the wrong people right you don't have to wait to be married to share the table with others you know, one of the challenges with these kind of topics is when you start talking about application with these kind of things, it can kind of feel a little moralistic at times. You know, but we need to remember the Christian life, to follow God leads us to act like God does, right? To be kind, to love justice and mercy. And it will cha- change us in how we, we actually live in the world. Uh, but those actions don't make us more lovable by God. In fact, it's being fully loved by God already that enables us to live out faith like this. You know, I heard a story about a church planter who was trying to be hospitable, trying to really lean into this idea. And so he had someone over for dinner at his house every day for like 30 days straight or something insane like this. And by the end, the kids, his kids were like, can we just have a normal meal? I can't even imagine what his wife said to him at at that point. But, you know, we don't have to do that. We aren't aren't God. We have limitations. Uh, We don't need to disrupt every little part of our lives. You know, Jesus went alone. You know, he needed quiet time. We need our quiet space as a family. We all have different capacities and we all have different seasons of life that we're in. But generosity and inviting the outsider in is simply taking what we have, however small or large, and extending it to the outsider. It's so that we can all do this work wherever God has placed us. And it will look different for all of us and that's what's meant to happen. But when we do this, What we'll find is Christ is there with us. Because hospitality is actually at the heart of the gospel of Christ. Why do we go out of our way to love the stranger? Well, because Christ went out of his way to love us when we were strangers. Why do we share a table with outsiders? Because Christ shares his table weekly with us, right? The one who was once an outsider. Why are we generous? Because Christ shares all that is his with us. This is our motivation. Right? To see the lengths that God went to to bring us into communion with Himself, right? Which was, you know, the community of the triune God was disrupted on the cross. Why? So that you could be grafted in, that you could be brought in into fellowships through Christ. And so now as a community, we can't settle for our little cloisters of people who look just like us and act like us and are the same age as us and have all the same interests as us. But we're called to be disrupted, we're called into this work. And we begin to look like a true gospel community formed in Christ as we allow ourselves to be disrupted so that the outsiders can come in, seeking those on the outside that they too might taste the riches that we've tasted in Christ. My prayer is that we would actually learn to be this kind of community. As we're young, as we're beginning to form, as now we're starting to know each other better, are we willing to let even the community we have now be disrupted so that others can be brought in? May we be this kind of people. May we be so enamored by the hospitality and the glory of Christ that we ourselves become a hospitable community and represent his glory to the nations. Pray with me. Merciful, gracious Father in heaven, I pray that you would... Help us all to consider in our lives of where you have called us, where you have placed us, and what you have given us. And may we be willing to share what we have with those around us, that they might come to know you as we have come to know you. Make us a hospitable people, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.